Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. I'm Janelli, and I'm an all-new approach to magic storytelling, the Weatherlight Saga. I'm Andrew Weissel, and I am an all-new approach to magic storytelling, the Mending. Okay, I know those two were new approaches, but I'm also an all-new approach. I'm Magic Origins. You can, you can stick with me. No, don't leave. Where are you guys going? Aww. <laughs> So we start today out with news, as we want to discuss the all-new approach to magic storytelling in the new IDW comic starring Shanjanalar. <laughs> in all seriousness, this comic looks pretty cool. It is being written by Vita Ayala. They have written Supergirl, along with the artist Harvey Tolobau, who has done X-Men in addition to some other stuff. The interviews surrounding this, there have been a couple articles that have come out on this new comic. They're taking an introductory approach for this, so it is not going to require you to have my level <laughs> of, or Carrie or Andrew's level of post-mending knowledge to understand where the story is going. However, it is going to connect to the main overall plot that we see in Magic Story. It branches off, and we'll talk about that in a second. This is Daniel Ketchum's side of things on the franchise team. He was part of that weekly MTG interview a couple weeks ago. Wizards of the Coast brought him over from Marvel, so this is him reaching out to his comic world connections and putting a product together with IDW, who uh, you might remember did the Dak Faden comics from when they started, like, 2014. They ended in 2014. They started in, like, 2012, yeah. Four years ago, eight years ago, it's all the same now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they took place alongside Innistrad, Return to Ravnica, and Theros. And that's actually, I'm glad you brought it up. Right. Because they took place alongside it, but they were complete side stories that didn't have the same main characters, didn't touch the overall plot of the sets they were taking place on. This new comic, the approach is that it is it's still a side story, but it's focusing on the main characters while they're off screen from the set. Which is going to be interesting, because we know this releases in November, and that's smack dab at the end of Guilds of Ravnica. Let's explain what the plot to this one is. So this takes place after the entire Ravnica storyline. It stars Chandra I, I think. with support by Ajani. No, no, no. Daniel in a interview with Comic Book. Confirm. I'm reading the comic. It, that's probably what it means, but it doesn't say explicitly after the whole thing. So, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, we have three sets on Ravnica. So, like we talked about this before, that we don't really know how this Ravnica block essentially is structured. So we don't know if like something happens badly in Guilds of Ravnica, which leads to this comic. That follows Chandra and Ajani and apparently a couple other planeswalkers who are unknown at the moment. It'd be interesting, because if that's not the case, then they have to be like, oh, this thing that happened to me was so horrendous, I can't even talk about it. And now I'm off to Lorwyn. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how they balance that, yeah. Yeah, the other way to interpret the comment is that this takes place after the third Ravnica set and the fight with Bolas. In which case, this comic releasing in November is supposed to take place after and be impacted by an event that 
Magic fans won't read about till April or May. It might be Chandra on Ixalan, so that it's like longer time, but then oh, shorter no. on Ravnica. Stop! <laughs> yeah, there are definitely some challenges with the comic publishing format, monthly 24-page comics, versus the quarterly, approximately eight-episode short stories, so... Every three months, we get about two months of short stories. So how they balance those two things will be interesting. What I will say is that this is an opportunity to get more stories like Ixalan and fewer stories like Dominaria. And what I mean by that is it's a great chance to focus on one or two of the main characters and really flesh them out more as characters than the current format for Magic Story allows, especially when the ensemble cast grows like it did in Dominaria. You know, when you have nine people to follow, no one gets particularly great characterization. So having a comic that's explicitly focused on Chandra with Ajani as a supporting character will be a great way to flesh both of them out. Yeah, so they describe this comic as really going into what makes Chandra Chandra, delving into where she gets her power from, both like metaphysically and emotionally. And that all kind of sounds like a similar kind of story to what they did with Jace in Ixalan, so good comparison, Jay. And if they want to franchise out these main characters, these are the kinds of stories they need to tell. I think the goal of this to be an onboarding ramp, a comic book fan who might have heard of magic but never gotten into it might see this, and read it, and think it's cool, and get interested in magic. I think that's kind of the core idea of what this product is supposed to be. For the established magic fans, this is going to give us a deep look into a character. I mean, Chandra's been the second most popular planeswalker since Lorwyn, so we're finally going to get a story that really digs into her and just her in hopefully a fulfilling way. But also, they mentioned in this interview that this gives them an opportunity to revisit planes and characters that the main magic sets may not visit. Things like Kamagawa and Lorwyn, places that hardcore fans will enjoy that probably can't support a modern magic set in a profitable way. So it'll be interesting to see where they weave things in and out of the new player and established player mindsets. So I should note, based on the title, what we're probably going to be looking at is a series of miniseries. If you're familiar with IDW comics at all, they like to do breakout miniseries that are four to six issues long, each focusing on individual characters just like this. So this is kind of a perfect project for them. The old comic broke up their story arcs a little bit like that as well into four to six issue arcs. It's going to be another test for how much this new franchise team has learned from pretty much all of the attempts at storytelling in the past decade. Because we saw this piece by piece with both the IDW series that came before it that was discontinued on a cliffhanger that who knows what happens and the Planeswalker novel series. The Planeswalker novel series almost did the exact same hit-by-hit thing, 
they wanted to attract fantasy story readers to magic, so they said, we're going to do a magic novel that is less magic, more fantasy. We're going to bring in fantasy authors for it, so they did Agents of Artifice and the Purifying Fire. What happened with those? We got to see a cool plane that people don't get to revisit in the card set, Kamigawa, then they discontinued them. So it's more of seeing how long they will be able to sustain these and seeing how long they're committed to whoever this product attracts. Because if it's not immediately generating players in the same way that IDW comics weren't after two years and the Planeswalker novel series wasn't after two years, I don't know how long it's going to last. And that's maybe a little bit cynical, but we have seen these attempts in the past where it's like we get to show you cool things, we get to show you plane chase planes in these web comics, and then we're just not going to follow through on the storylines we presented in them. Wizards, here's the trick to making these IDW comics and these ancillary stories successful. Market them. Tell people about them. Get the word out that these exist to people beyond the magic community. If nobody knows your thing is a thing, nobody's gonna buy it. That's been the main problem that the novels had and the IDW comics had. Please, wizards, market this comic. Please, IDW, market this comic. I feel like they're actually dipping into real advertising space, like, beyond any time that we've been involved in Magic. We saw Dominaria, where I would load up Twitter every day, and it would give me a Dominaria ad, and we would see Dominaria ads on Twitch streams that were unrelated to Magic. And part of that's, like, me being a Magic player in the past. It's obviously going to target me with Magic-related stuff. But people were actually, like, screen-capping these and sharing these on Tumblr and Twitter and, like, showing that these ads were popping up into their feeds even though they weren't directly involved with Magic. And so Evan Irwin on Magic Mics, well, off Magic Mics on Twitter, said that these resulted in better sales for them. It's just kind of a big thing, like, actually advertising the products that you sell on Twitter and social media. Who knew? And there was also, in a train station in, I think, Chiba in Japan, there were a bunch of digital ads on columns that I can't remember who took a video of them. But yeah, that was like real magic ads out in public. Real, modern, respectable ads, not the <laughs> Ice Age video. Because, yes. <laughs> yikes. What I will say is it's nice that they hired someone with significant comics experience to run the comics side of things here, essentially. Whereas, no legitimately, no disrespect to any previous member of the creative team, but a lot of them came from the community teams or the web team. They don't have those business connections at the very least, and they don't have necessarily the experience, so they're relying on their partner and not driving it themselves. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what this comic is like when it comes out and how well it does. Again, go watch the weekly MTG episode. We'll link to it again with Daniel Ketchum. He seems like he's a fantastic hire for that team. He's bringing in up-and-coming people in the industry to work on Magic. The interview talked about Vita is a huge Magic fan. They carry Magic cards around in their wallet. Daniel knows what he's doing. And I'm very excited to see this whole project come to fruition, finally. Because this was announced at the end of last year, I think? Yeah, 
IDW teased that if you were a fan of the old Magic comic to pay attention this year. <laughs> it only took eight months for it to get delivered. Finally. I thought it was just going to be Ice Age number five, and there's really <laughs> not much left to tell there. Let's move on to listener questions. So the first question comes from some random person named at MTG Lord of Leaves. Huh. Wonder if we're going to hear from them again. Do you guys have a Vorthos-themed commander deck, and if so, who's the commander? I gotta laugh at this one, because, like, all of them are Vorthos-themed decks for me. <laughs> I'm gonna be building Sahili. I've got Krenko, I've got Doretti, I've got Zakama, I've got Joda. Legitimately, almost all of mine are based around characters that I love. What about you two? I have 27 commander decks. They run the whole <laughs> spectrum between Mel and Vorthos. I've got a Bruna, the Fading Light Commander deck. The whole thing is the Corrupted Church of Avacyn, Emrakul, that whole stuff. There's tons of cards throughout Magic history that are feasible in that flavorful realm, even if they're not from Innistrad. Like, there's a card from the Odyssey block, Silver Seraph, that has Threshold. Moon Silver is a thing. There's a Flight of Moon Silver. There are angels all over Innistrad. The threshold mechanic even works with the delirium sub-theme. So even though that's not from Innistrad, it's like the perfect kind of card for that deck. My Thassa deck is all sea monsters. <laughs> that's a good one. I have a samurai deck that has a bunch of those janky Kamigawa equipments in it just because they're the samurai weapons. I have an Azori Claw of Progress deck where every non-land card is from New Frexia. And the only non-basic lands I have could feasibly be from New Frexia. So that's all very tight, and I don't have to edit that deck pretty much ever, because we haven't gone back to New Frexia yet. Carrie, what about you? I had Tefuri and Kozilek for the longest time. Tefuri was take all the extra turns, and as I've mentioned before, was not very popular or loved. So I pieced that apart. And then Kozilek was kind of colorless as many Eldrazi as we could get. It kind of was actually subject to Eldrazi Winter, though. People were really, really getting tired of Eldrazi, and so I kind of pieced that apart slowly, leading into Eldritch Moon, and then kind of just desolated the deck entirely. And then my latest one was Jace, Vryn's Prodigy, and it was all illusion spells, everything you could do. It's kind of low-powered, minus the Phantasmal Image, Palancron combo, which... They're both illusions, so I guess it's legal. I don't understand how Palancron's an illusion. I don't really see it in the art, but whatever works. And illusion is up there with Beast in one of my most hated creature types. <laughs> I mean, for that reason. I loved it because it was the one thing that let me win in that deck, but everything else has been kind of flavor neutral, and I don't really build that many decks anymore. I'm piecing apart the less that I have, so there you go. The next question takes a little bit of explaining. It's from at Spencer Kirkman on Twitter. Spencer says, I'd love to hear some of the Innistrad theories hinted in the latest Archive Trap Mini article. For those of you who might not know, Archive Trap Mini is the name of my blog on Tumblr. Almost no one calls it that. It was named after my original article series, but it's kind of moot since I ended the Archive Trap series. They're referring to my Let's Talk About article on the most recent, or on one of the recent Chronicle of Bolas stories, where I mention 
Innistrad's moon has something to do with the spirits being a problem there. Essentially, the theory is really simple. We know that the moon and things like the Hell Vault lead to this little pocket prison dimension. We know that things like Nathalia's beach are covered in silver that's like the size of grains of sand, and that's where the ghosts and things are the worst. Basically, all I think is that Innistrad's moon, and specifically the moon silver and its connection to this kind of pocket realm is keeping spirits from returning to the Aether on Innistrad, and that's why the spirit problem is so bad. The reason I think this is because something similar happened on Ravnica, where it had a pocket plane attached to it that captured all the spirits and caused spirits to manifest on the plane more than usual. That's basically it. An eldritch moon indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think the Thran that launched that silver moon into orbit knew that? Oh my god. Moving on. <laughs> I'm going I'm to miss these trolls. So the next questions, I'm not going to read off who's asking them, because this is going to be a very special question and answer segment. Carrie is the only one answering, and this is a rapid-fire question session for their penultimate episode here. Carrie had posted on Twitter to post the rapid-fire questions, and I'm going to be merciless. So let's do this. Here we go. Best place in the multiverse to live? Esper. Worst? Grixis. Most underappreciated historical event that left lasting consequences? The Sundering. What is Cindy up to? Oh, Cindy's probably napping. <laughs> um, she doesn't do anything else at my parents' house. She naps, she goes out, she naps again. Favorite magic character? Valtrys. Favorite non-magic character? Valtrys and Test of Metal. <laughs> <laughs> what is your preferred brand of bottled water? Now you're putting me on the spot. I'll just say Aquafina because it's the only one I can remember. Who would be your first choice of any person or character outside of MTG to join the Gatewatch? Hulk, but Hulk from Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> I love it. Who is the worst smelling member of the Gatewatch? I mean, canonically Chandra, but <laughs> I also think Gideon would be pretty oblivious to his own body odor. Character that died you wish hadn't died? Ugin. <laughs> Bolas. Uh, I. Let me think, actually. It'd probably be Baltrys, because I just actually enjoy Baltrys and Agents of Artifice and despise what happened in Test of Metal, so. Character who didn't die that you wish had died. Oh, Liliana. About, like, as soon as Liliana got introduced, she could have just died right there. That would have been <laughs> the best spot. Where's the best real estate market in the multiverse in terms of value per square foot? Ravnica Favarial District. What's your all-new approach going to be? Oh, my all-new approach is getting pro at Overwatch and getting sponsored so that I can win a whole bunch. No, I actually have been thinking about this, but I just kind of want to sample a whole bunch of different fandoms and never go this hard into anything ever again. Because as much as I love magic, this was way too much. This is going to be a little tangent from it, but I've been trying to finish every single magic novel just so that I can like 100% run the entire magic history, and I'm getting close. I want to time it up so that I actually finish the last novel before the last podcast is recorded with me. So we'll see how that goes. Do you think Nissa will shift to a bug alignment as she shifted at the end of Kaladesh to blue <sighs> and began to accept death on Amonkhet as she became the hand that moves? I think Arjun got my response here. 
but <laughs> a little shriek. Um, they will never commit to a three color or more planeswalker being consistently three colors or more. I think that's a big mistake, and I think they learned that with both Sarkin dabbling in pretty much every color combination except for white, and any kind of dual colored planeswalker they've walked back to mono color at any point. Counterpoint, Nicol Bolas has always been Grixis. Yeah, that's true. I would be very surprised if they cemented Nyssa in black, blue, green. Final question. Thank you for everything. Uh, I guess. That that includes a <laughs> lot of bad, bad <laughs> posts that I've made. So I don't know if I'm ready to accept that, but thank you. I appreciate all the people who have enjoyed all of my content, post or factual, or in between. There's been some of that, too. You know, I, I didn't want to interrupt your rapid fire, but when you said this has been way too much, I completely agree with you. <laughs> it's part of the reason I've been, like, rolling back a little bit as well. I've been, I, I went too deep for a while there. And I think it's enjoyable and kind of you want to see how far you can dig. And when you get down to, like, deconstructing old video games and trying to archive that lore, maybe you've gone too deep another tangent i'll go on for a little second if this community was better supported by wizards and better recognized then it would be easier for people to have very niche roles where there could be somebody who works really really hard to deconstruct old video games but doesn't have that as like all consuming their life and somebody who does pre-mending novels primarily or post-mending novels primarily or just cares about the duels game content I think those exist in a lot of communities where they have experts in very, very niche parts of the lore. I don't think Magic's supporting the fandom enough for that to ever be possible, though. So, unfortunate, but eh. What I would add to that is a large part of the reason we've been successful is because there's a void on that side of things. Yeah, we just know too much, and we have to disperse (laughs) it somehow. And I don't like writing, so... Have to infect all the rest of you with our brain worms. (laughs) See, I'm of the Ferris Bueller ideology of this. You can never go too far. Here's a bit of candid self-reflection that there are so many things in my life that I have just pushed too far just to see how far I could get with stuff. Um, the Magic Forthos fandom is definitely part of that. But, you know, I have used that to build myself into part of this community, and that has allowed me to have opportunities to actually work on magic now so my path's a little bit different than your twos yeah no i agree and it's valuable to learn skills from working in a fandom i don't think that's like anything to throw aside either i don't think i would have been half as competent at any kind of information management that i've done if i wasn't toying around with stuff constantly trying to archive a whole bunch of old stories and like manage as much story information as we could possible so that I could share it with friends and that we could level up in our Vorthos knowledge. Oh, absolutely. As I am now trying to strike out as a freelance writer in some fashion, kids don't go freelance ever. (laughs) It's awful. Um, (laughs) But I mean, writing about magic got me writing and got me more comfortable with writing and got me more familiar with how I write. So it's definitely been something that's been valuable just outside of becoming a creative text writer. Oh, I've learned nothing from working on magic at all. (laughs) Like Like, this is not managed, help me manage disasters at all. All Yeah, but you had a real, actual, important job, so... Uh, yeah. So anyway, 
This week, we have Magic Story Chronicle of Bolas Perspectives. And let me tell you all something that you probably don't hear is that this is the first week in months that we've remembered to put the title of the story in our little notes here. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. So most of the time we have to edit out the part where we go, oh crap, what is the name of the story this week? Did we actually type Niva and Baisha's name somewhere in our notes also? We we forget to do that all the time too. We did. I've forgotten (laughs) their names or gotten them confused literally every week. And we, through the magic of editing, I sound competent sometimes. So this week's frame starts where the last one left off with Niva essentially captured by Nicol Bolas and interrogated. Niva believes she can attempt to distract Bolas by getting him to tell his side of the story that she has learned from Ugin and the visions and the stories up until this point to buy time. And Bolas, of course, recognizes she's doing this, but he's so egocentric. I was about to say, like, (laughs) I know you're fooling me, but I'm going to tell you anyways. I love how arrogant and big-headed Bolas is. I've mentioned it in past podcasts. The fight between him and Lashrak and Future Sight, where they just trade insults at each other until Lashrak goes really low and reminds Bolas that he was killed by a mortal, and Bolas gets so pissed. <laughs> just really caustic dialogue after that point. It's just fun to see Bolas doing the not Bond villain thing, but he knows he's gets invested in his omnipotent persona even when he's aware of how arrogant he is he can't help but brag that's how arrogant he is and i think that's a really enjoyable part about his character and a very important part of his character otherwise his intelligence and powers of manipulation would just make him op which he kind of is anyway But I like that this arrogance is kind of his downside, even if he's aware of it. Can I note that this strategy is the same one that my staff use on me to kill time in meetings? They'll say, you know, oh, Jay, how's Arjun doing? And look, I know, I know exactly what they're doing. Yep. (laughs) There you go, Aaron. Arjun has guest starred again. I know they're trying to distract me, but also I really want to show them Arjun photos, so it works out for all of us in the end. So anyway, we get a flashback story that is Bolus's just complete and utter BS retelling of pretty much everything we've heard from Ugin's point of view up until now. It's pretty great. This was a fun reimagining of the story we learned last week from the flashback. Except it's got Bolas's editorialized comments in it and his definitely not correct sequence of events. And then we do get a little more at the end, but I guess we'll get to that later. And it is nice that, again, we had predicted by the end of the story we would get something from Bolas's perspective directly. And now we are, so that's nice. Let's just pick it up from where Ugin's story left off. Honestly, I believe Ugin's story more than Bolus's, although obviously both are going to be somewhat biased. Bolus's is obvious bull from beginning to end, while Ugin's, I can believe he left out things that maybe weren't flattering or he just didn't think of to add, you know. Bolus, after Ugin planeswalks away, his own spark ignites. I believe the line in it is, how dare he have something I don't? So out of just like pure 
rage at Ugin looking down at him, and avarice and greed that Ugin has something he does not, Bolus's spark ignites from that, which is just so perfectly, quintessentially Bolus that I, I couldn't imagine it any other way at this point. His spark ignites because he gets so arrogantly butthurt <laughs> over the spark. And he doesn't even understand that Ugin has a planeswalker spark yet. The way he tells this story, Bolas is telling it as if he was the first planeswalker, even though we know Ugin has been a planeswalker for thousands of years at this point. Yeah, he was just hiding out somewhere. He wasn't actually gone. Well, if you pay attention, Bolas's story in that regard, it's obvious that he knows he's lying, because then why would he say how Ugin could have something he doesn't? His, yeah, his story true. isn't internally consistent if he doesn't actually believe Ugin has the spark and the ability to walk these other planes. After that, Bolas visits hundreds of worlds. And what's interesting is, we don't know what he does to any of them, but I have a suspicion that we'll learn next week as to why it prompts a certain event later in this story. He eventually returns to Dominaria at a time that barely remembers the Elder Dragon Wars. Some of the language seems to indicate that it's the Time of Legends, which is like the 5,000 years between the Thran and the Brothers War. Some of the language is, you know, it's faded into legend, and this would still be a time past the Elder Dragon War where that would have happened and where the other Elder Dragons would still be active. So And alive. And alive, yes, because they start dying off during the Time of Legends, even the survivors of the Elder Dragon War. Bolas returns and meets with Arcades, and they have in Bolas's story a bizarrely peaceful conversation for the dragons. Civil. Yeah, yeah, civil. That's that's the word I'm looking for. Civil conversation, which feels like BS too. But essentially, one of the things that's really interesting about this conversation is Arcades doesn't remember Ugin interrupting their battle and implies that Bolas was just seeing things, which is really interesting. And I wonder if Ugin was hidden from Arcades' sight somehow. Well, no, because Arcades says, all I saw was you and that face down tutu. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we all know what that means. Well, it's Dominaria, so it's a clay spider. Yeah, the disgusting clay spider. That don't appear anywhere in the lore. <laughs> As Bolas departs, he gives Arcades a final parting gift. So he puts the thought into Arcades' head to make him this kind of tyrannical, xenophobic leader, where he has to question the loyalty of the humans following him. And then he just kind of leaves, leaving that in Arcades' head. Bolas, now a planeswalker, has much more power to influence the other elder dragons at this point as well so that's kind of depressing arcades really gets the shaft for being like one of the nicer elder dragons he is killed off screen when he's summoned in a battle he gets manipulated by bolus here and bolus through most of history and it's just it's sad for a guy who just wants to build civilization. Do you think Christina was like, I, I know some asshole dragon who I can just bring in and I don't really care if he dies or not, just because Arcades was an ass because Bolas made him? Well, Lashrak summoned... Oh, Lashrak. I thought... Christina killed him. Christina was the one that killed him. Lashrak was the one who summoned him. Right, right. And Christina apologizes for it. She is very sorry. So we also get confirmation of what I've suspected, that place with the still pool of water going in all directions is in fact the meditation realm, which brings up some issues here, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
Bolus, after leaving Arcades, comes across Ugin in the meditation realm, staring at his own reflection. Bolus claims he just tried to say hello to Ugin, and Ugin attacked him mercilessly, and they fought. Obviously, that is more bullcrap. So we'll have to see how that actually plays out. I imagine we will get Ugin's perspective of these events next week. But what's really interesting here is Bolus and Ugin have a planeswalker duel in the meditation realm. Bolus kills Ugin, or believes he kills Ugin, and there's this or really... just tells Niva that he killed Ugin. True. But the description he uses for this battle is really interesting. So let me read this quote about what happens after Ugin's supposed death. The waves spilled out of the meditation realm as if Ugin's death had, like a weight dropped upon a ceramic bowl, broken cracks in the vessel itself. Which is interesting, because it seems like this might have been the cause of a rift. That certainly sounds Mm. like the description, right? Uh... I mean, it sounds like one. I would be extremely hesitant to retcon in a rift, but it seems like one. It also feels like Bolas' death at the end of the champion's trial, so... And there's parallels to it as well, because Nicol Bolas, after this event, consumed by the waves and spit back out onto Madara, and the same thing happens to Tetsuo Umazawa after defeating Bolas. The realm collapses around him, and he is Very spit back out escapes, to yeah, yeah to Madara as well. So we'll talk about that more in a second as to what we think metaphysically is going on there. The frame story picks up with Bolas admitting he recognizes Niva is trying to delay him, and he is reading her mind. He mesmerizes her again, and Niva's old resentments that have been flaring up through this whole story come back up again. So she was obviously under Bolus's influence in one way or another for a whole while. Niva then pulls out her knife and goes to kill her sister at Bolus's command. However, while she's heading down there, she has a thought of what Taijin would think, and it breaks Bolus's hold on her for just a moment. So I think there's some hope there, but the story itself ends with Niva's blade to her sister's throat. I wonder if Tai Jin reappearing in the next story is what essentially saves Baisha's life. It's gotta be, right? He didn't appear in this one. Where's he been this whole time? I think it's basically like Chekhov's sexy monk. They wouldn't mention that thought if she wasn't going to use it later. Kate Elliott has been really great about conservation of detail that way for this story. That the things she's mentioned have mattered. That's literally what I was about to say. (laughs) Sorry. All right, so let's move on to our speculation. How much of Nicol Bolas's story is bullshit? The broad strokes are probably correct. So we can see the comparison between Ugin's story and his story, and they're generally similar, the moments that he describes. So I buy that his spark ignition story is probably true, exactly as he told it. He probably did wander the multiverse and see hundreds of planes. Probably did come back and encounter Arcades and try and manipulate his mind again. He probably did encounter Ugin in the meditation realm and have a battle with him, and he probably did get spat back out on Madara. But, you know, how did that fight with Ugin start in the meditation realm? Probably wasn't started by Ugin aggressively attacking Bolas. That's not Ugin's MO, that is absolutely Bolas's MO. How did his conversation with Arcades go? Probably wasn't so calm and respectful. 
there's probably a lot of bolus yelling. You know, he tries and retells the birth story and talks about how he's so selfless and generous and helped Ugin. They're not twins, and we know that's a lie. Yeah, it's interesting that Bolas reframed everything as Ugin grasping for some of his glory, which Ugin is a lot of things, but he is not someone grasping for glory or credit necessarily, so we obviously know that's not true. Let's move on to some of the timeline shenanigans here. We mentioned last time that the time frame they mentioned, if we go by the Dominaria art book and add four to 5,000 years, that we're skipping over the primevals and the Numena. Based on this story, it seems like Bolus's story is skipping over the Demonic Leviathan, which is a story that was recounted to us by Lashrak in Future Sight as kind of a prelude to the battle where those quips Andrew mentioned earlier were given. What do we think happened here? Do we think the Demonic Leviathan is just omitted for narrative consistency or narrative clarity for this? Or Well, I think these events are not important to the Bulls and Ugin story, so they're not going to be told. So, you know, this is both Kate and the story team being conservative with the details that they want to put into this story. Like, we don't need all the rambly background details that Dominaria had. That was part of the problem of Dominaria's story. I think the duel with the demonic leviathan planeswalker and its absence from this story maybe means a little bit more in the context of the Bolas and Ugin dynamic, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So don't forget about it yet. So this also brings up some not only timeline, but metaphysical shenanigans having to do with the meditation realm. Andrew, do you want to go through your explanation for it? The meditation realm. This was something that was invented by Scott McGough when he was writing The Champion's Trial, and it was this spiritual place on Dominaria that elites of the Madaran Empire could meditate and access and have meetings there. And it was a critical plot point that only spirits could enter there because that's where Tetsuo lures Nicobolus, then destroys his body, then destroys his spirit in the meditation realm. And then the realm collapses and Tetsuo barely makes it out alive. It's very dramatic. So that's all it was for years and years and years. Bolus comes back in the time spiral block and there's no mention of the meditation realm. But when he's folded back into the story for Alara, then all of a sudden the meditation realm is a whole separate plane. So then when Bolus comes back into the story in Alara and in Zendikar and during that whole period, now the meditation realm is Bolus's meditation plane, got its own card in plane chase. It's referenced and visited and planeswalked to in the comics, Enter the Eldrazi. Vraska goes there for the Ixalan story as recently as then. So since Alara, it's kind of been this whole separate plane that is Bolus's evil lair, essentially. So this is the third time we've seen the Meditation Realm. And the third time we've seen it function differently. So now it's described as this kind of in-between stage between planes, but not the Blind Eternities. And it's apparently artificial, Bolas mentions. And both of them could access it, but then Bolas didn't know about it in the Legends 2 cycle, because it was important that he didn't know about it for when Tetsuo lured him there. 
but then it was collapsed in Legends 2, but somehow showed up again in an Alara and that era. So we've seen this meditation realm appear three times, and it's never been consistent. All three versions are incompatible with each other. So at least that part has been consistent. Very odd. One of the questions I have is, are we really seeing three different versions of this meditation realm? So the original that Ugin first sees 20,000 years ago, possibly it collapses when Ugin is killed inside by Nicol Bolas. Another one in Legends 2 that maybe was reconstituted, maybe with Ugin's resurrection, it came back as well. We don't really know what happened there. We might learn more next week. Then it was not the meditation realm, but the meditation plane, although that just might be a terminology thing. And then Bolas dies in it at the end of the Legends 2 cycle, and when we see it again, it's different again after Bolas has been resurrected. So I wonder if it just keeps reconstituting itself because of these major events, and maybe that explains the crazy metaphysics differences between the two that are not really consistent. Although what's more likely is no one really defined it well, kind of like Andrew was saying, and like the egg between Nicol Bolas's horns, it has just kind of shown up retroactively in artwork and stories when it didn't appear there before, like that. That's my vote. It is a useful kind of battleground to have for whatever reason you need or hideout to have in the post-mending era, and that's what they used it for. That's what they needed it for here, so that's what they used it for. I genuinely don't think anybody was committed to the original metaphysics of it just because they were created as part of that story. And I don't think that anybody was committed to having a consistent history to it. As fun as it would be to believe that it's reconstituting itself. It was a tweet that I retweeted this week, but it's canon. Whoops, we didn't do our research and f***ed up. Fandom spins elaborate backstory to account for canon. And that's where we're at with this. I genuinely think that they just like the meditation realm as an idea that is associated with Bolas and associated with Bolas's past. And they want to incorporate it where they can. They don't really want to take the ramifications of incorporating it where they do, but they like throwing it in there. So that's what they do. We'll put it in the box with summoning as a metaphysical thing that nobody really wants to take the time to explain because that causes more problems <laughs> than just leaving it vague. I will say the meditation realm is at least not as screwy as Mirrodin, but that's a very low bar. Alright, so last question. What happened with Ugin? Did he really die? If he died, it's interesting that both Elder Dragons have died in the Meditation Realm and been resurrected afterwards. Did they actually create a time rift? Like, what, what's going on here? What do you two think? So first, let's address the Demonic Leviathan in the room. So the first time rift in Dominaria is described both by Lashrak in the novel and in the Player's Guide for Future Sight, as having been created by the first Planeswalker duel on Dominaria between Nicol Bolas and a Demonic Leviathan Planeswalker. This duel occurred off the coast of Madara, resulting in a time rift called the Talon Gates, which have these two big spires on the other side of a disc-shaped time rift. Because of that battle, Bolas has a connection to that rift, and that's what allowed him to survive being killed in the Champion's Trial. 
And that sounds an awful lot like what happens in this battle with Ugin. So is the demonic leviathan story just another yarn spun by Bolas to make him sound more threatening? That he killed this demonic leviathan planeswalker and consumed its body over months and used its skeleton to build a rift? That might be the lie. It might have been a rift created by this battle with Ugin that spat Bolas back out onto Madara in a pseudo-defeat, at least a Pyrrhic victory, or they're two different events, and we're just not told the Leviathan story, and maybe Bolas is spat out onto Madara through the Talon Gates because he had already created that rift anyway. And he's connected to it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So this is a spot where... I think either of those explanations could be correct, but we don't have any details to point us in one way or another. So unless we have more information, I couldn't confidently say one is more true than the other in terms of the facts. But in the interest of keeping established canon more correct, I would say that this is not the same battle that the demonic Leviathan Planeswalker did exist and did have a duel with Bolas earlier in the story, and that these are two separate events. But we'll see. I would also want to note that the Dominaria map, released just earlier this year by Madara, includes a blurb talking about the demonic Leviathan story too. I mean, in the scale of things, the demonic Leviathan story, it's like two pages in Future Sight. It's just a very popular lore tidbit because it's a very cool idea. We just don't know. I'm very intrigued to see what happens next week because I'm sure we're going to be getting Ugin's version of these events and hopefully see why he's called the Spirit Dragon because I don't think he's been referred to as the Spirit Dragon in the in the background story yet. Story yeah. thus far, yeah. It's going to be, I'm on the same side as you, with there has been too much outside of the fiction recognition of the demonic Leviathan Planeswalker by just wizard staff to the point where I don't think they would have, not that they all read these stories in advance, especially in this current era, but if they knew that that change was coming, they probably probably would have simply omitted the detail from the map and maybe taken a little less heavy-footed approach within materials like the art book and their interactions on Twitter. So, All right, so let's bring it around for our final thoughts. So this is a new one. I'm not sure if you've two have heard this yet, but there is a image of Doretti on Kaladesh, and I am not going to let it go. <laughs> Andrew, go ahead. So I've been using my final thoughts time recently to just praise these little literary details from Kate's story. Oh, it's so good. And I'm going to do that again because I can't get over how good all her parallelisms are. So there's a moment when he's talking to Arcades, and Arcades is telling him that he didn't see Ugin and Bolas must be a little wonky in the head, and that he probably just envies Ugin. And Bolas, in his internal dialogue, is saying, I envy Ugin? Ridiculous. Then I understood. Arcades was disparaging me, hoping to make me lose my temper as I would have done when I was young and volatile. But I was bigger than that. Much, much bigger. I was a planeswalker, first and only one of my kind. To rule in Dominaria was all very well for a small-minded despot like Arcades, <laughs> while I had grown as far beyond him as he was beyond pathetic, weak, short-lived humans. Now this all sounds very familiar, 
because this is the exact speech that Ugin gave to Bolas last week. Immediately after denying that he's envious of Ugin, Bolas plagiarized Ugin's I'm a planeswalker and you're a ruler of Dominaria and that's so small speech to Arcades. And this is just the perfect moment where we see a similar thing through the lens of both Ugin and Bolas. For Ugin, it was, Bolas, you're so small, there's so much more you could be worrying about. And for Bolas, it's, Arcades, you're so small, I'm so much bigger than you. <laughs> and just, like, that nuanced shift in perspective and how this dialogue is said, because it's the exact same kind of rant, is just so perfect for each of these two characters, Ugin and Bolas. And I'm just very much enjoying these kinds of parallels between them. I'm really glad you brought that up, because that was a really cool section. Bolas just feels so inadequate. He can't get over the idea that he's not all that. And he's so desperate to be number one. It's really sad. All right, Carrie, final thoughts. I don't really have many. I'm finishing up the Champion's Trial book series. I've got two more trilogies after that. I'm going to finish them before next week, and then I will be the 100% Vorthos run of Magic Story fan, because I will have read everything, and I will be a champion. I don't think there are many people outside of Biren Boer and Ethan Fleischer who've done that. I haven't. It's impressive. Yeah. I mean, eventually. There's weird stuff like duelists and stuff that just aren't going to be plausible for me to collect all of, so getting as much as I can while I can. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And speaking of collecting things, my audio probably sounds a heck of a lot better tonight because I have a brand new microphone. Thanks to our generous patrons over on Patreon. Thank you all for supporting the show. This is our kind of first investment into keeping the show as professional, I guess is the, the word I'll use. We very much appreciate all the support we get from all you folks. And if you don't already support us on Patreon and would like to, you can visit patreon.com slash thevorthoscast. Gets you access to our Discord channel where we're building a community for Vorthos's young and old, new and veteran, serious and silly. It's a lot of fun. A lot of talk about Super Smash Bros. Ultimate right now. <laughs> all, all, all the good King DDD memes. It's, this is the place to go. <laughs> but yeah, we, ju we just appreciate everyone listening and everyone supporting the show and are super glad that we can share all this content with you folks. Thank you for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.